I would love for you to open your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4. If you have a church Bible in front of you, it's page 1768. Page 1768. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 4. Any of you who've been with us for recent weeks will know that our, our aim uh, in the during the course of this term is to open up the letter that Peter wrote to a number of churches with um, a particular angle in terms of the way we're understanding this letter. Right at the beginning of 1 Peter, he talks about the Christians as being elect exiles, as chosen refugees, chosen sojourners in a foreign land. And he didn't mean in the sense that they were literal foreigners. Often they were in the places in which they were born or had been brought up. He meant in a spiritual sense. He meant in a deeper sense in terms of their, uh, their identity, which we'll be exploring in, in a few more dimensions today. So I want to read uh, from chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, and consider again with you some of the aspects of what this means as for the people of God, what it means for the church, what it means for you in your individual Christian walk, to experience this posture, this reality, this identity of being an exile in the world. So let's read together from verse 1. It says this, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I want to speak to you on the theme of godliness in exile today. And I want to begin again with this question, what, it, what exile is, or what exile feels like, and what it means in the experience of the individual Christian. It may be a completely new concept to you if you've been accustomed to thinking of Christendom and Christianity as the dominant force in the West. But of course, even though that was true for many centuries, uh, the reality of the early Christians, and increasingly the reality of people who call themselves Christian in today's world, is that they do not feel that to be true anymore, that there's an increasing sense of separation or of alienation between your desire to follow Jesus and the way and the direction of culture and of society at large. And that's not entirely a bad thing on so many levels. It enables Christians or people who call themselves Christians to really assess their own faith, their own posture, their own sense of allegiance. But what does it mean then to be an exile? And there are a number of ways you can answer that. One is that you feel 
And you ask yourself if this is true of you. You you feel a sense of a sadness with the state of the world as it is and a sense that it's not as it should be. Along with that, I think, is also a longing for, uh, a desire for, yearning for home. That kind of deep urge that says, this isn't, this isn't it. There's something better. And of course, for the Christian, that sense of home, that longing, that what C.S. Lewis described as a kind of nostalgia, is really associated with being with Jesus. There's a, a sense that nothing will be right until we're with Christ, until he comes again. And of course, perhaps the deepest reality or the most foundational aspect of what this means to experience exile is the question of allegiance, the question of submission. He ended this section by saying, to Christ belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And I think that's it, really. That's the dividing line. If you're a person who can agree wholeheartedly with that statement, to Christ belong glory and dominion, which means authority and rulership and sovereignty forever and ever and amen. If it's your deepest desire that Christ should rule and should be seen to be ruling and should be honored as ruler, if that's who you are, then of course you sense a great deviation from that in your day-to-day life with the, the world as it is. And you long for Christ to be all in all. That's what it means to be an exile in this world. And so evidently, people who feel this, people who sense this deep inside their gut, are people who are affected by it in a deep way because it shapes then your identity. It shapes who you are in ways that cannot be hidden or suppressed or covered up or ignored. And it's true, isn't it, that you think about your earthly identity, whether it's your nationality or where you come from, whatever it is, these things cannot easily be disguised I remember when I was at university, one of my close friends at university was a Korean guy. And he used to say, I can spot a Korean on the street anywhere I go because of the way they carry themselves. or what, uh, A Korean sense of what is fashionable, or these kinds of things. And he could, he, could, he could spot a fellow Korean easily. And I know that even though my wife, her family from Malaysia, whenever we go back to Malaysia, given that she's born and bred here, it doesn't matter if she... Um, puts on the same flip-flops, you know, um, the same shorts, same t-shirts, and, and uh, lounges around in the same hawker stalls eating the same food. People in Malaysia still know she's a foreigner. And uh, I can't tell the difference, but they can. They look at her and they think, you're not from here. And they dress her, address her differently and, and uh, raise the prices of everything or whatever else is happening. <laughs> and of course, think about this. If you're British, as I am, a Brit... On holiday, we hang our heads in shame because we, we see other Brits around. And they're easy to spot by their love of alcohol, by their passion for football, by their love for bland food, and how we, you know, we gravitate to the Irish pubs, um, by the pink skin because we've not seen the sun for about six years, by all these kinds of things, a sense of superiority, the speaking slowly and loudly in English, whatever it is... Um, English people can't, or British people can't really hide who they are. It's just, it just comes out. And we, you know, um, for better or worse, that's just the reality. Now, there's a sense in which, of course, as Christians, those who are living in exile, we understand that there are, there's a, that the, the differences about us are both visible and plain. Now, of course, I don't necessarily mean at that superficial level. I think that there's, um, you know, it, there have been times particularly like in the 1970s when my parents were kind of 
um, in their 20s, I suppose, and they were, you know, everyone who was a Christian, if you were zealous for God, you'd wear certain badges and uh, demarcate yourself in certain ways. I'm not sure how wise that necessarily is. Um, And, you know, having the fish sticker on your car, because when people see how I drive, I'm not sure if it makes Jesus look good. But, you know, the... But I'm not talking about those superficial ways. I'm talking about the fact that at some level, the identity of being an exile will express itself in some of the most fundamental aspects of your identity and how you live and who you are and how you speak and how you think and feel and all these kinds of things. And of course, that's natural. One of Peter's strongest uh, themes that runs through this letter as he's addressing these people of exiles is he's enforcing and encouraging this idea that you are different and that's okay. It's a message that some of you need to hear right now. You're different and that's okay. This is a constant theme throughout scripture. In the earliest, uh, in some of the earliest books, when God is speaking to his own people, the people of Israel, He says things like this to them in Exodus 19. He says, therefore, if you'll indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In other words, even though everything on planet earth belongs to me, he says, you're special. You're different. And people will see that difference. He makes this visible difference even more explicit in Deuteronomy 28 when he says that the Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself. And the word holy uh, can just mean separated out, pulled out, pulled apart from, from, from everything around, made God's own. Holy to himself as he's sworn to you if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. And all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they shall be afraid of you. He's saying your difference will be explicit It will be visible, it will be plain to any observer, and it will cause a reaction, sometimes even of fear. Jesus, of course, picks up on this when he's recalibrating what it means to belong to the people of God, what it means to belong to the kingdom of God in his great Sermon on the Mount, a kind of kingdom manifesto. One of the first things he says is, you're different. He says it in a couple of ways. He says, you're the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? And then he says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. And so I don't think we should tire of exploring this idea that being different is not only okay, but is to be celebrated because it is a logical consequence of the fact that now Jesus has taken his rightful place of lordship and of authority in your life if you're a believer. And if in fact people do not see this difference in in you as an individual, if they don't see this difference in us as a church, there's something wrong with us. They ought to see this difference. The Holy Spirit is bringing about this change within us. And what I want to explore is a few more dimensions of this this difference. And I want you to grasp one particular key truth about this as we get into this theme. That what is it that makes us different? And I think that one way you can answer that is that we, of all people on earth, know God. We know this God. We know the true God. We know the God of the Bible. Which means that our whole lives are infused with The theological reality of who God is. The knowledge of God. And because we now know God in the various dimensions of his character, 
His reality is being imprinted upon us. To be a Christian is in many ways to mirror God. And that ought to be true so that when people look at you, they see something of the nature of the God you serve. It's always true regardless of whichever God you serve, of course. It doesn't matter what idol you worship, you are becoming more like it. And therefore it follows, if we worship the living God and if we worship his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, his image is being imprinted upon us. That's almost the definition of what it means to be maturing in the Christian faith, isn't it? That you are becoming more like Jesus, which means that your whole life is being infused with this theological reality, this knowledge of who God is. And with that in mind, I want to explore a few dimensions in this passage of, what, of who God is and how that is then reflected in the way we think and act. And I want to talk about God as judge, God as holy, and God as love. And these are all things which Peter mentions or assumes here in these verses and which are forming the identity of these exiled believers. Let's begin with God as judge. He says halfway through this passage, we'll jump right into the middle. The end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. And I wonder, to what extent does the knowledge that all things are going to come to an end and that we will face God, to what extent does that shape your present moment? And you can think of it a little bit like this. When you travel overseas and you travel east or west, one of the, th- the first things you experience, of course, is the difference of time, the different time zones. It's a bizarre thing that as you, as you travel east, you rush forward in time. And as you travel west, you can actually land earlier than when you took off if you fly fast enough. And, of course, the watch that's on your wrist may still be set to home time. And so is your body. I think it's a good analogy for what I'm talking about here. When Peter reminds the believers that the end of all things is at hand, he's assuming that something they knew and which we know, which is that we set our watches to a different time. The world as it is can speculate on the end of all things, what the end looks like. For some people, that's a near and possible cataclysmic event for others. It's a, the, the heat death of the universe, eons of times away from now. But for the Christian, we cannot but set our sense of time apart from our knowledge of God as judge. The end of the world is assumed here. But more than that, I think Peter's talking also about the end of you. The end of your life here in this temporary existence in this flesh before you come to meet the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's a defining knowledge for us as believers, isn't it? It shapes so much of the way we think and feel about our day-to-day life. And I want to ask the question, how is that reflected in our lives? And I think that the answer is that it should give a deep significance to the present. Knowing that you live your life before the watching gaze of a father who is also our judge, lends a deep significance to this present moment. This theme of judgment comes through in a a few places in this passage. But look at verse 5. He's talking about this flood of debauchery, he says, in the world at large. And he says, but they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living 
and the dead. That might strike you as a terrifying thought. I think it is intended to. And of course, for the Christian, the terror of judgment is taken away by the fact that we know that we are covered by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. That he accepts us, that he loves us, that he washes us clean. That the record of our debt cannot be held against us. And yet Jesus also assumes that even though you are a believer, if indeed you are, nevertheless, we will stand before him one day. And it's something that, in fact, I think we look forward to with eagerness because we long to see him. We long to bring to him our lives, to be accepted by him, to understand and hear his stamp of approval upon us. Now, what does that sense of that knowledge that one day all of us, the living and the dead, will stand before Jesus, what does that do to us? And I think a couple of things can be said. One is it gives you a deep focus and clarity in the present. And perhaps this is one thing which ought to distinguish then the believer from the non-believer, the Christian from the non-Christian. I think it's, 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 it's perfectly understandable if you have no knowledge of God to live a life that that lacks purpose, that lacks focus, that lacks clarity, because ultimately you will rightly ask the question, what is it all for? And I think it's hard to give an answer to that. But when you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, when, as Peter shows us, you understand that he's the judge, that we'll, we'll, we'll meet him one day, it lends a focus and a clarity to the meaning of this present moment of day-to-day life. And more than that, I think also it gives us a certain sense of urgency. This is a, this is a theme which comes up throughout the New Testament. I think about passages like Matthew 25 in the teaching of Jesus. Jesus tells this parable. I won't read it all, but he tells a parable about ten uh, virgins awaiting the arrival of a bridegroom at his wedding feast and how they all are carrying these oil lamps. And for whatever reason, his time, his, his arrival is delayed. No one knows when he's going to arrive. And their lamps are burning long into the night. And five of them fall asleep. They, they run out of oil and they haven't trimmed the wick on their lamp. And when they wake up hearing a, a murmur because the bridegroom has arrived, they have to rush off to go and sort their lamps out, by which point it's too late. They miss the feast. They're excluded from the feast. And Jesus told a number of these kinds of parables. To imprint upon the imagination, the understanding of the believer that your life has a new sense of urgency now that you know one day you'll see him. Are you ready for that? Are you ready to meet Jesus? I think one of the trends that we see in the world at large is a a longing to delay life, to delay responsibility especially. It seems to me that the person, I don't care how young or how old you are, living with this weighty sense that my life, that one day I'm going to be before the living God, lends every moment, your youngest days and your oldest years, a sense of weightiness and significance. I must live now in the presence of this God. I was reading this morning um, the story of a man called Uzziah, who was one of the later kings of the, of the kingdom of Judah. And uh, it's recorded in two chronicles. He was one of the better ones. There were some pretty terrible ones, but he was one of the better ones. And it says about him that he began to reign when he was 16 years old. Think back to when I was 16, with acne, shy. And, and uh, you know, I think I was far from suited to rule a nation 
Uh, you could barely rule my, I could barely rule myself. And you think, this boy was set up on a throne, and it said he ruled for 52 years. And he did so successfully. He did so doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord. So that from his young years as a teenager, right through into old age, his whole life carried this theme of obedience to God. And you ask the question, how? It tells us here. It says he set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah who instructed him in the fear of God. As long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. From his youngest years, the, prophet, the priest Zechariah was teaching him about the fear of God, about the fact that God was watching his life. And it lent a significance and a weight to what he was doing in the present so that whether he was 16 or old, it didn't matter, all of it. His whole life was lived for God. And I think this is something we all need to hear today. You know, you think about how we live our life in phases in this day and age, don't we? You think about how we live as teenagers. And it's all about having fun. Of course, this is just a mythical invention. The teenager. What is the teenager? It's an arbitrary category. The Bible says grow up. Become a man. Become a woman. Think about people, how they then, in our, particularly in our age, we then push that into the 20s. We delay all the important decisions in life, like who you're going to marry or whether you're going to have kids or what you're going to do for um, what, you're gonna, what calling you're going to pursue, all these kinds of things. We delay it as long as possible, if indeed those are things which you're called to, but we delay it in the hope of preserving the sense of living irresponsibly or living for fun. And I think the Bible says, no, 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 you, your life is to be lived in service to the Lord Jesus Christ now. And how we also, you know, we get into that middle age and you have that crisis about whether you've wasted your life or not. And, you know, technically, I think by Bible standards, I've reached middle age already. And uh, you think, you know, what do I do at this point? Do I, do, I, do, I, um, do I recoil into some crisis and go and buy myself another motorbike? I've had motorbikes in the past. I haven't ridden one for a while. But, hey, I could do that. No, no, no. I, I have focus. I know I'm here for the glory of God. And then we dream of old age and we dream of retirement and we dream of clocking off and, and resting and, uh, and, and, and of all the, the luxuries that we'll have acquired by then and because we'll be prosperous and have a great pension and all the rest of it. And the Bible says, rubbish, this is not what life is about. Life is for Jesus. And the exiles, these community live with this knowledge of God as judge that gives the present this weight and the significance. I'm living before him how can I please you, God? Are you living with that, sense, that question? What do you want from me, Lord? What does it mean to serve you in the day-to-day? This is an urgency. I want to say, by the way, before we move on, I don't think that urgency is the same thing as hurry. Hurry comes from a sense of panic and fear, doesn't it? We know what that feels like. Rather, this urgency is, is a longing, is love. Is the desire to please the Lord Jesus and to get on with what we're here for. An exile community is marked by that purposeful living because we know God as judge. Here's the second thing we know about God, which he talks about. We know and we live with the knowledge of God as holy. It's related, of course, to the first, but it's slightly different. Because this sense of urgency we've been talking about, the sense of the shortness of your life, focuses in on one very specific thing which you want to deal with, which is we want to get rid of our old ways. We want to get rid of sin. We want to align our lives to the holiness of the God that we serve. 
Of course, this is one of the most obvious distinguishing things about the people who became Christians in the early church and which ought to be obvious and clear about us when we give our lives to Jesus. Peter talks about it repeatedly throughout his letter, which is why we're coming to this theme yet again. But in chapter 1, he said this, As he who called you is holy... You also be holy in all your conduct, since it's written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Can you see how what he's saying is the same as I'm seeking to show you today? If you have a theological vision of who God is, and that includes his holiness, therefore it follows that you who worship him, you who honor Jesus as Lord, your life ought to mirror that same holiness, that same longing to live a pure and devoted life for the the glory of the Father. Amen? We have this all-compelling reason to do so. We want to mirror him. We want it as individuals. We want it as a community. It's a great shame when the people of God are known for their sin. But it brings glory to God when we're known for our devotion, for our holiness. Is it true of you? Is it true of you? Is that what people know you for? Do they know you as someone who says no to that stuff and says yes to this stuff, but whose life is lived for God? Is it visible about you? Now, I want to dig into this just a little bit more deeply because Peter talks about a a few motivators for holiness in this passage, which I think are very helpful, and a few sort of more practical aspects. I ask the question, how specifically... Are we motivated to stop sinning? And I think there's a few things he points to. Here's here's one. Peter talks about the power of suffering in your life to make you holier. That's how he opens this section. He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. What does he mean when he says, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin? I think there's a lot of wrong ways you could take that passage. Of course, one of them is that you have suddenly become, because you've suffered in some way, you've become totally pure, totally holy. And I don't think that's how the Christian life works at all, as is clear throughout the New Testament. But what I think it does mean is something like this. Here's how it was put by one commentator. He said, when believers are willing to suffer... The nerve center of sin is severed in their lives. Let me say that again. When believers are willing to suffer, the nerve center of sin is severed in their lives. What does that mean? I'll think about this analogy. Some of you will have at some point um, sought to engage in a body transformation project. And, you know, as they say, you know, move more, eat less, right? The two things magically they do work but it's so hard to do in practice isn't it but sometimes if you do more movement and let's say you sign up for classes you go to the gym you start you start um, throwing your body around and doing all kinds of things which are completely fruitless activity except in that it brings about a sweat and a high heart rate the more you do that the more you're devoted to that the more you drive yourself in that direction it should also carry over that you have a little bit more self-control when you go home and eat right Because they say abs are made in the kitchen, not in the gym, Um, which is my downfall. So, but anyway, that's how it, that's how it ought to follow. You work out hard and then you go home and you eat, you eat well, you eat the right stuff. 
Of course, it doesn't always work like that. We're, we're human. We, we tend to make excuses for ourselves. I've, I've suffered over here, therefore I'm going to indulge when I get home and eat whatever the heck I want. And of course, that's, that's, that's the weakness of the human mind. But one of Peter's points is this. You think about the analogy when it does work. He's saying those of you, those of you who feel the pain of following Jesus and have suffered for it in some way, you, you pay the price in some way. It costs you the sacrifice. He said that what that does is it, it severs the power of sin in your life. It helps you deal with it. Because why, you know, you see the contradiction. Why would I, why would I, why would I give my life to the Lord in this sacrificial way only to then just mix it all up with all this sin? And of course it makes sense, doesn't it? Here's another thing he tells us. He says that, he shows us that being sickened with sin will make you holier. I see this particularly in verse 3 when he says that the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. Why does he say the time that is past suffices? I think what he means is something like this, that many of you, and I know some of your stories and I know how some of you came to faith in Jesus. Often it's the case, isn't it, that we... We reached a point of sickness with our old way of life. And you could say with Peter, the time that has passed suffices. I've had enough of it. I've had enough of my self-indulgence. I've had enough of my selfishness. I've had enough of that unrestricted so-called freedom that just left me in a pit, left me in a mess, left me feeling sickened with my own self, full of, feeling with a sense of wretchedness, with a sense of shame, with a sense of being dirty. I've had enough of it. The time that has passed suffices for doing all of that. When he's describing these old ways, he's talking about this life of sickening self-indulgence that actually leaves you depressed and empty. I remember my dad telling me how when he was a kid, uh, he didn't grow up in, in a Christian home, so there was no particular reason um, to live a certain way or not. Um, and, you know, he, he, he'd, he'd raided his granddad's uh, alcohol closet, uh, cupboard at one stage when he was about seven or eight years old. And um, he'd gotten pretty drunk on, I don't know what he was drinking, with brandy or something like that. And it so revolted him that even as a seven or eight-year-old boy, he resolved, he made a decision, whether it was subconscious or conscious or whatever, he'd never get drunk again. And you think that was the power of the sickness of that self-indulgence. And you all know exactly what I'm talking about, right? You drink yourself, you know, metaphorically speaking, into the ground, and then you think, I never, ever want to do that again. You have a hangover with sin the next day. And of course, the trouble is, we do go back to stuff unless the power of Christ intervenes. That's what happens when you become a Christian. You say with Peter, the time that is past suffices for doing all that stuff. And of course, there's still the reality of this battle. In Peter's next letter, in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, he describes this very vividly when he says that the true... Proverbs says uh, what has happened to some, that the dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. It's not a pretty sight, is it, when you see a dog vomit and then go and lick it up again. And he says that, unfortunately, is exactly what Christians are like when they go back to that stuff. 
But as a believer, now that you've experienced a better way, a higher call, he says you're sick of it. You want to walk away from it. And he also mentions this other element. He talks about the power of the Spirit for self-mastery. That the, ho- the Holy Spirit can give you self-control in order to make you holier. You look at verse 2. He says that uh, whoever suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for human passions but for the will of God. You know, that's the, that's the, the alternative that's in front of you. You can either live for human passions, which is to say to follow every appetite without restriction, or you can devote yourself to the will of God. One of the ways that historically uh, Christian teachers have talked about sin is they've described it as a kind of incontinence, particularly in the area of sexual sin. What's incontinence? Incontinence is the, is the inability to control um, your, your excretions from your body. And of course, it's, a, it's something which brings with it shame, uh, humiliation, and, and all that kind of thing. If, you know, it's, not, it's not a desirable situation to be in. But when you take the metaphor over into elements of your, of your behavior, the person who is, who is incontinent is the person who cannot control their passions. And the gospel is precious because not only does, does Christ come in and clean you up, as it were, from the mess that you're lying in as a result of your incontinence, but Christ also puts his spirit in you so as to give you self-control. This is something which Peter talks about very explicitly. He says over in verse 7, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Friend, you may have believed the lie that you cannot help it. That you're stuck. The glory of the gospel and of the New Testament message is you are no longer a slave. That you have been freed by the power of Christ so as to live in the way that he calls you to live. Peter does acknowledge that this is not going to be easy. We've caught this vision of a holy God. We desire our lives to mirror the holiness of God, to be holy as he is holy. But we're all, we're all still living in the swamp, aren't we? And that's what he says when he said that, you know, the time has surpassed and suffices for doing what the Gentiles do. And he lists all this stuff, which basically sounds exactly like 21st century London, doesn't it? Nothing's changed. And then he adds this other feature. He says that when you try and do what's right, they all malign you. Of course, all of us have been there where you said, you said, no, I'm going to draw the line. I'm not going to do that anymore. And then what happens? Peer pressure creeps in. People begin to mock you, call you all kinds of names. And you, and you begin to, you know, just through the sheer desire to please people, you give way. Now, Peter's saying, listen, I understand that. But the Christian is a person who has a higher view of who God is. He's your judge. He's also perfect in his holiness. Friend, I want to call you again. To be in exile is to live as Christ lived. Praise God for his forgiveness that he keeps washing us clean. But friend, do not stop repenting. We're called to mirror the character and the quality 
of the life of Christ, aren't we? So that it's visible. So that it's plain. So people will see you and know you are different because you worship this Savior. Let me bring you to a final element here. We live with this other aspect of the knowledge of God. We know God as love. I I think this is so vital to stress because we don't only want to think about our differences in the negative sense. It's not only that being a Christian is all about the no. It's also about what we embrace. It's about embracing the better way that God calls us to. And one of the things that Peter keeps coming back to is reiterating and rehearsing and restating the wonder of the Savior who we serve, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his self-giving sacrifice as an act of love for you. I don't know if you've noticed this as we've read the letter, but whenever Peter teaches something about the identity and the lifestyle of a Christian, he seems to keep coming back to, because Christ died. Because Christ died. And because he died, this is why you should live like this. It's all the way through his letter. It's there in this, the opening to this passage where he says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Or everything he says flows from the logic of this Savior who loves us and gave himself for us. And I want you to think and meditate upon this question. How does worshipping and serving a suffering Savior shape what you understand a holy life looks like? What you understand godliness to be? Because I don't think that this can be overstated its importance. This is one of the things that makes the Christian faith so unique. You can go to any other faith and they'll offer you a moral pathway. They'll offer you a list of this is what's right and this is what's wrong. And many lives can be improved through all kinds of teachings that are available in all different kinds of religions. But one thing which Christianity offers which is utterly unique is the unmatched degree of love the living God showed to us in the gift of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the love that Christ had for us in his willingness to lay down his life for us. And the Christian mind and heart and imagination is utterly molded and shaped and transformed by that vision of godliness, by that vision of what righteousness is. This is why I think when Peter's talking to these elect exiles, he comes back yet again to a rehearsal of what the community life in the church needs to look like. And you, you see this in, from verse 8 onwards. Where he says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. You can think of it like this. That when the church of Jesus Christ fails to be a people of love, it's because they have not comprehended the love that God showed us in the gift of his son. But the more that we comprehend the nature of God, that God is love, as John tells us in his letter, the more that we grasp and feel the weightiness of the love of God and the spirit speaks that love to our hearts, the the love which cries out that 
Abba Father. The more you experience and feel the love of God in your own life, the more this love has to shape and mold you and work its way out in the way you live. And that, my friends, should be visible and plain as well. This is why I think, let me just, let's just look at these verses together, the kinds of things which he encourages the Christian community to live out. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. There's one thing. If you have all kinds of gripes, small or big, with other people in the, in the church community, what do you do with them? Sometimes it's appropriate to confront people. What Peter says all, is also appropriate is just to cover them up. Refuse to even allow yourself to meditate upon them anymore. It goes on, it says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. When the early church was formed, these people, these individuals from different walks of life found themselves into this new community, which was a hodgepodge of people who didn't necessarily naturally gravitate together, which is exactly the description that we know of church. Suddenly, they had to be nice to each other. And Peter's saying, this is the love of God that he forms in your heart, a passion for the person sat next to you, who you may never have met before, but who is a brother or a sister in Christ, and you want to open your door to them. You want to be in each other's homes. He said, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. To be a steward of the grace of God, to understand the gospel, means that you cannot but therefore live out your life as an offering of service to others. If Christ gave everything on behalf of us, the Christian is marked by their willingness to serve. And the degree to which you are willing to serve reveals the degree to which you understand that you were saved by the Son of Man who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Can you see the connection we're seeing here? To know God as love means that that change has to be visible in your life. That you love other people, that you forgive them quickly, that you open your doors in hospitality, that you serve others. He goes on, says, whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And I think that's the note upon which we need to dwell. What Peter is saying is this. The world is watching the church. What do they see? When they see a community that is mere reflection of the world in which we live, there is nothing attractive or appealing about it. But when... They look in, they gaze through the window, as it were, and see a people who are devoted to one another, who love one another in sacrificial service and hospitality and affection. When they see that, it gives glory to God. And what does that mean? To give glory to God merely means the outshining of his character. God's glory is the outshining of his character. How do people see the character of God? They see it in you. That's what it means to be an exile. Your job is to bear the identity of the God we serve. To be a reflection of his nature. To bear his image. 
And this is true in all the ways that I've mentioned. Does your life mirror this reality of who God is? Another way of asking it is to say, are you godly? Think about this first element. Do you you measure time by that day? Do you live with the sense that your life is lived before God? How would it change today if you did? Think about this aspect of the holiness of God. Are you wanting and longing to repent of sin and bring it to him and and come to God and ask for the strength, this self-mastery that Peter talks about, this self-control, because the end of all things is at hand. Are there dealings that she must have with God today? Do it now. And are you devoted to the people of God? As you reflect upon the love of the Savior for us, does that same love begin to grow in your heart towards the people for whom Christ died? Do you love the church? Are you devoted to her? Are you passionate for her? You can see, can't you, that when you paint the picture of that kind of a community, characterized by these dynamics, by these emphases, it's a wonderful thing to behold. And our prayer is, our longing is, that as we understand what Peter is teaching us, that it becomes true and increasingly true of us. That we settle for nothing less than this. That we want to badge the image of God in the world. Amen? Amen. I want us to bow our heads and pray. I'm going to hand out the bread and the wine in a couple of minutes as we celebrate communion. How precious that we get to eat the bread and drink the wine. That we know the love and the acceptance of the Lord. That he's covenanted with us. That he's accepted us. That he's made us his own. And to eat and to drink is to re-remember the promises that he made to us and the commitment that he's given us. However... It would be inappropriate to eat the bread and to drink the wine without also therefore reflecting. How, Lord Jesus, do I need to change? How do I need to align with the reality of who you are, even if I'm swimming in reality as the world defines it? What does it mean for me to more and more resemble an exile on the earth and less and less resemble Someone who just goes with the flow. So I want to urge you as we eat the bread and as we drink the wine, pray to the Lord in your spirit. Lord Jesus, how do, I, how do you want me to change? Enable me to do so. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that in you we have life. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that you gave yourself for us to purchase us out from the world, to make us your own, to make us holy, to make us a people who belong to you. But Lord, we so easily, we, we, we so frequently, and, and it just as a normal part of everyday life, feel the tear, the pull. So on the one hand, we know we belong to you, and we have one foot firmly planted with you in heaven. But we also feel that we can define ourselves by our life on this earth. And Lord, we want to pray, Lord, will you come and shape us again? We want to be an exiled people, Lord, 
who know that our primary identity is to belong to you. So purify us, save us, and change us, we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. I'm going to hand out the bread and the wine. Just remain seated for a few moments as we do this.